Well, my personal life was a wreck. Uh, it was an absolute wreck. I mean, I uh, conversely, it was the opposite to me. It was, I refuse to give this up, even when I'm standing in front of a firing squad and people are laughing like, you're just an idiot. Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm Petra Belzebor, and this is the place to discuss tips, tricks, and hacks to build your resilience through your worst rock bottoms and get you to a place of success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life, professionals, individuals who've been through their own adversity, and allow them to share their authentic and real life stories, opinions, and ideas about how to utilize our worst rock bottoms and allow them to catapult us into success. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm very excited today, all the way from New Jersey, we have got Clyde Riddlesbrood. Have I said that correctly? Yes, you did. I did. Wonderful. Um, he's the founder and owner of the Riddlesbrood Touring Theatre Company. I'm excited about this because I've interviewed some people within the music industry and talked about kind of the highs and lows of, I don't know, there's a lot of stereotypes around what that world is like and how easy or hard it is. And so I'm curious about your story. Uh, so Clyde grew up in the entertainment industry, so you know it inside and out, working with your father at a dinner theater in South Jersey. And you started your own theater company in 2000. Now you've been in a whole bunch of shows and the touring company has done so many shows. So you're, you're quite um, a, an experienced guy. Welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to sharing some of the experiences. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Now, you probably don't know much about me, but I'm actually wondering if there's, and this is going to sound weird, but some slight similarities. So I grew up in a religious cult. Now, bear with me, bear with me, <laughs> bear with me. Um, I'm not going to say that it was that extremist, but... Well, theater is a cult too, so I, I can relate. Yes, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking like <laughs> you were, if you were born into this kind of family and lifestyle, your path was kind of set for you or you would have been so surrounded by it that there would have been some strong drivers to, to be in that industry. I don't know. Do you see any similarities? Oh, yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I was always, you know, getting stuck in, you know, doing lighting or helping carry in the equipment. And, you know, not just my dad was involved in theater, but he was involved in some improv groups when I was young. And my mother was also in a several bands, you know, so I was always getting drug out to the the uh, the restaurants and the bar scene, hanging out in a booth till two in the morning till she got done. And, hanging out with the waitresses and that kind of thing. So I, I definitely grew up in that milieu. Yeah. Do you have siblings? I do have two brothers and uh, neither of them are really involved in the arts. One is a teacher, one's a computer programmer. I was the only one who kind of went into the, uh, the art side. The other two, I guess, were sufficiently jaded by it. <laughs> but, I, you know, I really enjoyed it when I was younger as a kid. You know, I was always hanging out with the other theater folks, and I loved getting laughs. I was always a class clown, you know. So, uh, you know, actually, I went into college. Believe it, I went, actually went into the military first. I was in the military for four years so I could go to college. And then when I, I got out, I went into archaeology. So that I, I actually didn't think I'd be doing it. I know. I, that sounds un, unusual. Uh, now I don't dig up anything but bad jokes. But, but back then, I really did think that I was going to be involved in, in uh, archaeology, which, which was a passion of mine. But 
at the time I was going to college, I was also working at the theater part time. And honestly, as time went on, I just realized that not only was I really good at it, but I just loved it. I just, I didn't want to let it go. Do you feel that you missed out on anything like because you were maybe expected to help out the lights or do certain things like in your downtime? Did you, did you miss out on social stuff or not really? Not really. Actually, I looked at it as kind of a benefit. Like when I was in high school, because I knew how to use, work the lighting equipment, stuff like that, I would often get hired by the, the high school would hire me to come in and do lights for some of their concerts and stuff. So it was kind of interesting because even though I was a high school student, I was kind of like considered somewhat of a professional. So I was given a little more respect. So I, I kind of thought that was cool at the time. And I made a couple extra bucks where a lot of my friends, you know, didn't have a job, didn't make any money. I was able to have a couple bucks and, you know, I was the first of my friend to have a car. So ironically, usually theater is not where one makes a lot of money. But as a teenager, it seemed the reverse. You had some skills. Now, now did your parents try and warn you off um, the, the path or did they encourage it? You know what? I think maybe a little bit of both. You know, no one's of one mind all the time. I mean, sometimes I'm, I'm, I know my dad liked it that I was involved in it sometimes. Other times he would say, hey, you know, we don't got a lot of money for college, so you better find something. But I would say not really. I mean, uh, I kind of fell into it by myself. I never would feel that I was forced into it. If anything, I was kind of let go. And I kind of always missed it and always wanted to come back to it. So for me, it was not a situation where I felt, you know, pigeonholed in, in the theater world uh, or entertainment world. You, you sort um, of veered off of it. You went into the archaeology. You, you kind of went down a different path and somehow returned or came back to it in a different place. Yeah, exactly. I mean, actually, you know, when I was in the military, I was, you know, just a regular infantry guy. Uh, but even in the military, they had some shows. So I would like still be involved in some of the shows. Uh, as a fun thing. So I never completely let it go. I always just really enjoyed being, have the family atmosphere of being in a theater. And then the military, I don't know, are there similarities just to the discipline elements that you learn or would you say that it's very different? Well, it's very different in, in many ways. Uh, certainly, you know, politically it's it's very different, but there are certain things that are strangely similar. For instance, one of the things about acting and entertainment in general is that it's a strong meritocracy, a meritocratic, I don't know how you would say that, but, um, but there's no denying talent and there's no denying dedication when you see it. So unlike some other kind of jobs where you can kind of sit in a cubicle and kind of pretend to know what you're doing, you know, there's just no arguing that at the end of a show when every actor walks out, and then you walk out and everybody goes, yay! There's just no arguing who's the best. So because of that, in some ways, it's like the military because you're, not, you're judged on what you can do. You're judged on the outcome. You're not judged on just being there, which is unusual in some ways because theater in general is highly liberal. But in many ways, it's also strangely very meritocratic, you know, that way. Like what you can do matters more than you know, you just yeah. being there. The result, sure. Would you say that you're a driven person? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would definitely say, yeah. I mean, I think to be an entrepreneur and to be in entertainment specifically, which is not an easy craft to try to master or make a living out of, uh, you do have to be 
driven. So I definitely have that. I've always known what I wanted to do. So in that regard, I've always felt blessed and benefited because I know people have a hard time finding out what they want to do. I've always known that I wanted to do some of this stuff. So that was an advantage. You have to be driven, but you also have to be bloody resilient. Like, for the, and I realized that you you've worked in in your with your family business and in those sorts of ways, but just the amount of as you know from the stereotype from where I'm sitting, the auditions, the rejection, the performances that are shit, the ones that keep getting better, you know, like you have to be so have this belief in yourself or be able to just keep coming back, almost like you almost have to torture yourself in a little way with this belief that you can make it or something. Well, uh, yes, except for me, it was not in that realm. It was in, I would say, the sales realm when I became uh, basically a business owner. Um, you know, uh, luckily, because I was involved in theater and arts, uh, you know, from a young age, I was in a privileged position to kind of be exposed yeah. to it and uh, exposed to a lot of really talented people. Uh, so I learned the trade from within. I didn't have to audition. You know, I didn't have to get rejected all the time. I was, if anything, you know, it's very there's a lot of nepotism in theater. So once you know a lot of people, other people are like, Hey, can you do my show? Can you do? So especially if you're good, you kind of get passed around, you get a lot of experience. So I didn't really do that many auditions and the ones that I did do, usually I got selected. So my biggest thing was once I said, Hey boy, I know how to do theater. I'm going to make this my living. I'm going to start a business and see if I can get people to hire me. That was when these things started to really come into play where I realized being good at what you do is only 1% of what you need, <laughs> you know? Sure. How old were you when you, when you made that step? Well, uh, I would say about 26 is when I finally decided, you know what, I'm going to start the business. And at that time, it was me and a couple of my friends and a couple of my theater friends. And we literally just, we created a, a little brochure and I literally just, uh, me and one of my friends, we just literally drove to restaurant to restaurant talking to them and pitching, hey, you know, this would be a great thing for your your customers. You know, they'll come in, they'll see a comedy show and they'll eat. So we were selling the dinner theater package and uh, that's how we really started is driving to restaurant to restaurant. So lots of just hustle and putting yourself out there. Yeah, there was a lot of hustle and a lot of like, you know, failing forward. I mean, there was a lot of times we, were, we just didn't even know what, if there was a demand, we certainly didn't do any market research to decide, hey, I wonder if people really need this. We just said, we want to do a show and we got to find somebody who'll pay us to do it. So we kind of did it ass backwards, you know, based on what you're supposed to do. But And I think that whole what you're supposed to do often comes from the people that did it all wrong. And then they're like, in a perfect world, in hindsight, I would have done this, right? Um, but yeah. I just tested, tested, tested and saw, you know, saw what landed. Yeah, honestly, I wouldn't even say I would do it differently because the reality is, is sometimes just pig-headed determination is way more important than having some kind of scientific plan. Uh, you know, we just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And uh, and that's how we got. Now, sometimes we fell off the cliff and crushed ourselves sometimes on the rocks, but we just kept getting up and kept, and kept going. And we kind of got lucky because in the beginning, we got like five or six shows we start our first show was a comic version of a christmas carol 
That was our very first show in 2000. And we did kind of remarkably well to get five or six shows right away. So I kind of thought, oh, this is easier than I thought. Even though it was a lot of work, I thought it was easier than I thought. And then we tried to do it in the spring and realized right away that there's a lot of demand for dinner theater or entertainment in the fall, uh, much less in the spring. So we didn't understand the seasonality of it. And then we, I went around and didn't get anything. And then finally, we got one show, and it was called Medieval Madness. And it was like a medieval show with ogres and all. And, and it was a funny, funny show. But we only got one, and then we rehearsed for six weeks. And then the one we went to was canceled the day of. We loaded in, brought all this stuff in. We're all ready to go. Two people showed up. And we didn't even do the show and all my actors basically quit because they thought that was such an insult. So, yeah. So these are the things that you realize when you don't have a real good plan. You can't just hope that it's always going to (laughs) work. No, but there is something to be said for action over the perfect strategy. Like I see people trying to make the perfect strategy, get all the right advice and they're not doing something every day. And um, I feel like that order doesn't necessarily support people either. Because, because you can feel a bit safe in your, in your planning, you know, like behind the scenes, and it can feel a lot scarier to put yourself out there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, you got to get over that fear of, you know, rejection right away. I mean, you just got to accept the fact that I'm going to make a pitch. I'm going to meet this guy or this woman who owns this restaurant or whatever it might be. And I'm going to say, hey, do you think you want to show? And they're just going to say, get the hell out of here. Or even more rude, or they'll just say they, they're, they're busy, they're not going to talk to you. You just have to accept that it's a numbers game after a while. I mean, sometimes it's psychologically brutal, but at a certain point, you just got to say, I'm going to make 30 calls today, and I'm bound to get one or two, and that's just the way it is. And just keep just accept the numbers game uh, aspect of it. Um, I'm a big fan, too, of besides just putting the pedal to the metal, of having really strong habits you know, like me, I do like a certain amount of calls every business day. And I don't even think about it anymore. So I don't like sit down and say, hey, this is my week to make all my calls to my client and do it all in one big campaign. I just make it a daily routine. I'm going to make a couple of calls today. And then I go through some of my paperwork and then I go through some of my... So it's just habitual. And eventually the habits will keep you going, moving forward. And then you can use your brute force energy for projects. So I imagine you've learned some of that the hard way, the fact that you need those, those habits consistently and it's not dependent on how you're feeling that day. Exactly. That's exactly the right way. You can't, it can't all be based upon your mood. I mean, there's some days you don't want to do it. And, you know, I'd be lying if I told you sometimes I didn't do my calls or something like that. But in the main, I keep at it. And that prevents you from getting a little bit of burnout because you get used to it. Like, like, you get used to rejection. After a while, you don't give a shit. And that's really what it is. Once you don't give a shit anymore, that's where you're empowered because yeah. you don't care if they say, I mean, you, obviously you want them to say yes, but, you know, you don't care as much if you don't get a yes. And you also, you take it less personal. It's not that your product is bad or anything against you. It's just the way the game goes. Right. There's just not, it's not a value to certain people or you're not going to be able to get them to understand the value. Uh, also, a, as time goes on, we, we've learned, I've learned, you know, where what we do fits in and where it really doesn't fit in. I mean, there's been some times where I know somebody would hire us to do a show and I would almost kind of know that it wouldn't work 
I know, I know that they'd hire us, they'd pay us, they'd get a few people, but I knew that they wouldn't make any money. And uh, as time went on, I, I began to realize, you know, I just can't be pushing this product on people that I now that I know it doesn't work for them. So I've been able to push it in areas where I know it's successful. Yeah. So it's like, a, it's like looking at the small picture, getting a quick, like getting paid for the show, but it's not the big picture of making a client really happy and maybe getting more shows after. Well, you know, when you're selling entertainment, you're selling an intangible thing. You're selling a service that people can't compare it. So trust is very important and reputation is very, very important. So, you know, we learned early on that, you know, you really want to make sure that you get good reviews. Uh, I mean, when we started, there wasn't Google and all that stuff, really. So people didn't do reviews. We had letters of recommendation. But honestly, we have great reviews and uh, we do everything we can to preserve that. Sometimes even lose money to do it because it's better to preserve your reputation than make a, a buck today. Um, very important in entertainment. Well, and, and in, in business in general, your, your, you know, your, your reputation is everything. So let's zoom out of your life for a minute because we're, we're right in this beginning part of your, your business. And I'm always curious about our, our, our catalyst moments, our rock bottom moments, the ones where maybe we don't see the way ahead and that some internal stuff is going on that can then kind of superhuman us forward into uh, a better place. And I wonder if you resonate with any of that language, just as those, the rock bottoms or the catalyst moments, like what showed up for you? Yeah. You know what? I, I would say the biggest problem, the, th the thing that really pushed me into doing the business, I mean, I'd always kind of thought about, wouldn't it be nice, hmm. but I didn't really actually do much about it until like 99. And what happened was I was going to college. I, I was in my, almost my final semester. I think I had one more semester to go, but I was in my next to final, final semester. And my stepfather died. My mother had gotten remarried and, and, and my stepfather died. And I was living with them at the time. And they said, oh, you know, you can live here for free so long as you're going to college. Um, so that was kind of the deal. My stepfather died and it was really, really uh, surprising. My mother went into a terribly deep depression and, you know, there was a lot of fighting and the family went through a huge rift. She eventually kicked me out of the house. So I was like, uh, you know, I, I had to drop out of college. I only had one semester to go and I had like straight A's, you know, so I was like really thinking I was going to do great. To make a long story short, I had to like take another job. And uh, so my whole college thing got shut down. And I was really staying on a friend's couch for a long period of time and being a beggar. And I was really at a low state. And then I just decided, you know what, forget the archaeology plan. Forget working full time. I'm going to try to start a, a theater business. I don't know what I was thinking, you know, at that low state, but I decided, you know what, I'm sick of working for other people. Uh, I can't go to college anymore. I just wasted all that time. I wasted all the time in the army, you know, so I could get college money to go to college. And now I can't even finish college. So it was a pretty brutal, nihilistic period of my life. But the dream of having the theater troupe somehow gave me meaning and gave me a direction. And I think that might have been a very important in retrospect is because you know, because my whole identity was based upon this dream happening, there was almost nothing I wouldn't be willing to do to accomplish it, you know? So 
I had maybe an extraordinary level of fire under my ass to make this work. And I went out and told everybody, hey, guys, I'm starting my own theater company. It's going to be great. So I put myself on dangerous ground. I put myself where I burned my ships on the shore and there was no going back. It was either look like an ass or succeed. Really and fun. luckily, I, I did. Want, yeah, and right. I just want to highlight that for, for our listeners, that it's super powerful, this idea of being backed into a corner where it's sink or swim, like you just don't yep. have backup. And I love what you said there, which is tell a shitload of people. Uh, that's right. what I advise people, like if I'm mentoring or coaching, is like start talking about it as if this is the plan and this is happening. Mm-hmm believe in it, talk about it. And you create these little accountability loops. Like, as you said, you don't want to look like an ass, right? Or, or seem like a failure or you've told somebody. And then what I, I'm hearing that, that does for you is then you back it up with the work ethic. Because yes. you, and you said you have a fire in you. you. You've got to prove, were you proving something to yourself or to anyone else? Like internally, do you think? Uh, yeah. I mean, I knew I had, I, in other words, I knew I knew the craft well. I, I knew I was a great actor. I knew I knew how to do shows. I knew I'd seen enough of the business, so I knew the mechanics basically. My thing was, can I have nothing? Start with nothing. And literally through nothing but the sheer force of my personality, go to restaurants, people that have money, and say, give me your money, and I will give you my craft. <laughs> and that is what I didn't know that I could do. But then I found that I could. So I found that I could, you don't need anything other than just a burning desire and uh, a crazy look in your eye to, to get people by hook or by crook to, to, to buy your uh, stuff. Now, as time went on, I realized, you know, doing it that way wasn't the most efficient. Now we do a lot of AdWords and, you know, we don't have to do that kind of stuff anymore. But in those early stages, just being a shark out there was was the way to win and putting yourself i mean would you say like many early stage entrepreneurs that you became a bit of a workaholic and i say that with kindness like highly dedicated and committed to uh you know the dream that you were creating oh yeah i I had no life uh, and i didn't want a life and and that's the one thing like luckily and they say you know do what you love and it won't be work i mean to, to my benefit you know Doing this was was something I loved to do. So it wasn't like I was trying to, you know, clean toilets. You know, I, I was trying to do something that I really, really loved to do. And I forget, somebody had told me this too, like, you know, uh, when I was a little bit, you know, getting sick of sales and that one guy was saying, I forget, I wish I could remember who it was, but they told me something that I've always remembered. He goes, wait a minute, you love telling everybody about this dream you got. You love telling everybody about how great your shows are. You love telling everybody about these great ideas. That's all you're doing. Just look at the sales call as an opportunity to get somebody to talk because God knows your mom don't want to hear it. Your dad don't want to hear it. Your girlfriend don't want to hear it. Nobody cares. But, you know, you could finally have an opportunity to talk about the shit that you like to talk about. Call a client. <laughs> and I, like- honestly, I, I use that. I use that as a little, little psychological, uh, you know, crowbar. That, yeah, I completely relate to that. If it's something that you love doing and you love talking about, it doesn't even feel like sales. I mean, you had to hustle a little bit by going out on the street, but if you're excited, but, but what people don't see, so obviously you can go on that inspiration, that fire for a good portion of time. And then at some point, you know, either, either you're scaling up 
um, or you're burning out or something begins to shift where you realize, or I've realized that you have to, I have had to work more on the business instead of in it uh, and, and kind of use different, learn different tools along the way. And without having that perfect strategy, that can be a little bit of a bumpy ride. I mean, did you have mentors or was it just, you know, every time you fail, you learn from it? Like what, how did you reflect or get yourself through those early days? I wish I could say that it was some kind of a, a simple one directional evolution, but, but yeah. what, what it really was, was the business would get off to a decent start and then I'd be on a track. So I start making plans to evolve upward from that track and then something would strike and blow it up. And then I'd go back and I'd have to find a new track and then re-energize to get back to that plateau again. And then something would blow that up. And then I'd have to go, crap. And then I'd have to go, okay, I'm going to do this now. So there were several of these things that just didn't evolve slowly. Like, hey, one year I'm doing 10 shows. Next year I'm doing 20. Next year I'm doing 30. And and on and on to so the what, great what days. Were those, what were those crash points like when you were like, I've put all my energy into this and then it dips or it doesn't work? Or, you know, did, did you go into days of, doing nothing or depression or like how did those days show up or did you bounce back straight away like what was that like for you well i would say the first big thing was like i think i kind of briefly told you where uh we, we had a modicum of success the very first december we did some shows and we were riding high from that and, and then i realized right away that i couldn't replicate that i couldn't even get close to it yeah. and that was like half the year and so i realized oh now i don't have actors anymore now i can't even have a show anymore that, you know so i I had to have a job. I had to get a part-time job. So I kept it alive. And then, you know, I had a show here, a show there, but so rarely that each show was really just, you know, we, we just getting anybody I could to learn these lines and throw the show up just to serve the client. So I realized, boy, this is not, I can't run this business like I, like you would run a community theater. You, you just can't. Uh, then I got a lucky break. We did a show and then somebody heard about us somehow and a guy who was opening up a brand new dinner theater down in Atlantic City, not in Atlantic City, but right outside of Atlantic City, heard about us through a friend of a friend and they had us come in for an interview. And of course, I pretended as if we'd been doing this forever. We're big shots, you know. Luckily, my brother was a programmer. He had an awesome website for me. So I was like, I had this awesome, great looking website, which nobody else even had. Yeah. And I showed them these really nice cards. Uh, you know, I had, I, I was always very, very strong on appearance. So I would always look, you know, you know, fit from the army. I had nice clothes on. I had a polo with our logo on it. I had nice, you know, color business cards. I had the nice website. So I walked in there bullshitting them saying, oh yeah, we got this, 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 this. Well, you know, he hired us. And then not only did he hire us, it was a full time. Like we got $10,000 a month to do shows wow. every week for like, and we were there for like three and a half years. Oh, wow. So I went from nothing yeah. to death to better in some ways than I were even today. Because they don't, businesses like his can't even run anymore in this world. Uh, so I, we got this lucky break to almost be professional out of pure bullshit and luck. Um, and that taught me a lot. Now, unfortunately, the guy, you know, I didn't understand a lot about business at the time. The guy was spending his 401k and spending his 
inheritance and everything to try to keep his dream of a dinner theater alive. And we were doing a great job, but you know, it wasn't making money for him, you know? So eventually he went completely bankrupt and we crashed back down to nothing. I had to move back in with my mom, you know, we were back. We, we went from doing 200 shows a year to five, you know, within a blink of an eye. So once again, the company was smashed to bits and most people thought I would just stop for you because, because some, some entrepreneurs are always hustling and they're always thinking of the next thing, the next thing, just in case. And then some people, they sort of begin to coast, right? Cause you're like, Oh, I've got this in the bag. We're good. Let's just coast here for a while and enjoy this. And then it can just come out of nowhere. Like, what was it like for you? Well, I mean, maybe there was a little bit of that coasting, uh, but I'll definitely say I didn't prepare for that. The last six months, I knew it was inevitable. So then I quickly tried something unsuccessfully. My thing was, is like what I said before, is I was on this track. So even once I started seeing there was trouble, I started saying to myself, oh, you know, we got to make the shows better. Uh, I got to do it cheaper. I got to do it more efficiently. I got to do what I'm doing now, but better. And that wasn't really useful uh, because the track itself was dead. So it doesn't matter how good, fast your train is, how fuel efficient your train is. If the tracks end, you're dead. So that was kind of a mistake there. I had all my eggs in that basket and whatever I tried to do was assuming the tracks kept going. So when it fell and was destroyed, uh, basically we were destroyed. I, I was effectively a storage unit living at my mom's house with all the equipment and all the props and all the set in a storage unit and back to doing very few shows. So I got another part-time job, you know, to try to, now we still had a few cause we would still do a few little out shows, a few little touring shows. So we were technically in existence uh, and I did everything I could to make sure that it looked like we were still successful, even though we were really barely there. And that's when I had to start from scratch again, all over again, I went back to the original idea, going to restaurants and trying to push it. How long ago was this? This, this? this was that. That was in. Uh, it ended in 2004, and I would say it really wasn't until 2006, the beginning of 2006, that we really started to pick up good steam. Because yeah, my personal life was in absolute ruin. I'm glad. Okay, good. I'm glad you went there because I wanted to go there because I'm like, there's this parallel story, right? Of your, your stepfather passing away, you're, you're being kicked out of home, like you're um, being essentially homeless for a while, like that whole thread. Right. And, ooh, where did, where's that path gone? Given that you said you had no life and you're fully doing your job. So we, we've got the, like the work track and I'm curious, and you've got the perseverance. And so one of my questions is, <laughs> did you feel like, giving up. Let's just fuck the theater company. I can't do this anymore. And then, yeah, what is going on in your personal life? Well, my personal life was a wreck. Uh, it was an absolute wreck. I mean, I, uh, conversely, it was the opposite to me. It was, I refuse to give this up even when I'm standing in front of a firing squad and people are laughing like, you're just an idiot. You know, you're just a stupid well, idiot. If you keep works. trying to do this, you don't even have a place to live. Right. So, I think just pure obstinacy kept me on track. And if I didn't have, again, I kind of say put myself on death ground. I, I still went around pretending as if the Riddles Brew Theater Company was still as cool and awesome as it looked on a website. 
and as cool as the business cards and the brochures. The brochure was its was its proof of existence, and I still would go to occasional meetings with people. Like I would go back to some of the old clients, and of course, I wouldn't tell them anything that went wrong. I would just tell them, you know, because I know I could still do it. I had a group of people that I could still call on to come and do the show. So I could still limp on before I could find a new way to rebuild. So for a period of time, you know, I burned through a few jobs. That's another thing, too, I always like to mention, too, because, you know, I had to take on these other jobs and I was the worst employee possible because I would get a job because I needed the money. But in my mind, all I would be thinking about is, is, you know, my own dream. So I was like the worst employee in the world because, uh, you know, I would get fired sometimes, you know, I would, if a show happened, I'd call out so I could do the show. So that was difficult to keep burning bridges, burning bridges. But all I did is I just kept saying to myself, you know what, eventually I'll have enough that I can just, you know, get on the escalator. I won't have to fight so hard every day. It will happen if you keep pushing. If you, if you don't mind pushing, you'll, you, you'll get there. It'll show up. I love that patience and, and persistence. But do you think you sometimes used work in this obsession as an escape from maybe your relationships and investing in the people that were around you? I would have to admit, yeah. I mean, that, that's the, the dark side of ambition. I guess the dark side of enthusiasm and that whole idea, you know, with the Napoleon Hill white hot desire that you have to have. The dark side of that is you become Machiavellian to some degree. You become exploitative. You know, you, 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 have to become cold because at the end of the day, everything must be sacrificed for the campaign or for the crusade. And yeah, I mean, I would have to say that there were girlfriends that I had at the time that, you know, I was not very good. I mean, uh, you know, not to get into this, but I had a girlfriend at the time. She was very nice. I was down on the skids and I really didn't want to be dating. But she was trying to be helpful. But, you know, me at that time, I was like, I just want to hide until I get myself together. I don't want to, you know, prance around. I, I just want to hide and wait till I get myself back together. And unfortunately, I was too weak to just simply say, listen, I just don't want to be in a relationship. End of story. You're nice, but it's just not good for you. It's not good for me. End of story. Instead, I let it limp along and limp along, and eventually it ended in a bad way. And it was like I was the jerk, and you know, but it was my own weakness. I shouldn't have just, it wasn't that I was trying to, you know, exploit her. It was just that I was too weak to say, listen, I just can't give you, you know what I mean? You know, and, and that's hard, I think, to, for people to understand is, and, and as you get, older, you realize, boy, there has to be some, some checks on the ambition. There has to be some things that are more important, but that is the dark side. You know, you, if you become that driven, you know, these things can happen. You'll start burning people out, you know, and, uh, I must admit, I left a, some trails of tears during those dark times. Um, and, uh, you know, one can say, yes, was it good? Was it not good? I don't know, but that's what happened. Uh, I think I've learned from that, but 
tis what it is because it because it's so real and and people see the the especially in this instagram world right um they see the the fluffy side of ambition they see the results they see the you know whatever the impact of it is but they're not seeing the the tears the the relationship breakdowns the you know the price that people pay to push themselves in that to that in that extreme way and that it's it's both a blessing and a curse um like Sometimes I just wish that I would be one of those people that's just content with those little things. And it's just yeah, like, yeah. Oh, I've got this much income and that's cool. And I can just do a day job and I don't need eight side hustles on top of my main <laughs> hustles. You know what I mean? I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> just take a breath, you know? Um, and, I'm, and I am learning this thing about balance, but that my balance is kind of different from other people's balance. It's not 50-50. It's like I'm trying to learn for it to be 80-20, you know, which is good for me, right? Which well, is, I mean, the other yeah. thing too is I can't, I can't honestly tell you, oh, I learned from all these experiences that I really should have, a, I should have had a better work-life balance because that's actually not true because I can afford to have more balance now. Right, because I've gotten to the level that I'm at. But back then, if I would have said, you know what, I need to have more 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 work life balance, I would have just failed, because yeah. the world yeah. is the world, and I had to face it as I as it came, and yeah. that required 100% ruthless dedication. And if I would have tried to have work life balance then, I would have failed. So you know, it's not even accurate to say work life balance is is a just a net positive. It's not. It depends upon the environment you're swimming in. And it depends what you want out of life and whether it's worth it to you to, to push in a particular way. You know, there, there, I imagine you've learned that there could have been different, like less carnage maybe to yeah. people. But as far as the amount of time that you were dedicating, the amount of hustle towards something, it sounds like it was, it was necessary in order to get to where you are now. Right, exactly. And, and that's the sad thing. That's why I said people become a little bit Machiavelli. Like there was times when I would know that I needed a part-time job yeah. uh, for a while because I knew I was going into a dark season. But I also knew that the fall was looking good. So I knew I'd have to quit you know, at some point. So I'm going in there. I'm, I'm telling them all how I'm going to do a great job. And, 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 but at the back of my mind, I know I, you know, I, I'm only going to stay until it's strategically useful for me to stay and, and then I'm done. Uh, and and that takes a certain kind of coldness yeah. to be prepared to use others to obtain your goals. And maybe there's some karmic penalties for that. But at that time, I was willing to pay it in order to achieve the goal. So you you can afford to have more balance or to think differently now. But sometimes the, the way we work becomes habit. You're talking about having strong habits, right? So yes. created some, some habits so that even like, what's that transition been like? Or what does life look like now as far as spending time on things that bring you joy versus the business? Well, I mean, you know, now, I mean, I, luckily I haven't had to really work. Uh, the last time I really had a full-time job was in 2008 and I was actually a real estate agent. I did that for several years and it was a great way because it was very flexible and I was already in my car a lot. So I could make sales calls for either hustle, I guess you could say. But then the downturn happened in the housing market in 2008 and the whole company shut down. Yeah. 
So I worked there to the last second, and then they were like, sorry, man, everybody's got to go. Which actually, you might know, I worked for Foxton's. I know you're in London. Yeah. Foxton's opened a uh, Northeast branch, and then we were in Jersey. And actually, it was really great. We were driving a little Mini Coopers around, and it was a great job. I really, I was so sad when it was going down. I was like, no, this is a perfect gig. But then I actually briefly tried to get another real estate job. And the, the economy was so bad, real estate was so bad that I just said, you know what, I'm going to put all my energy into the theater and I haven't had to have a regular job since. So, and my wife actually uh, is actually uh, makes decent money because she works at a hospital. So I'm fortunate that, that she adds some stability to when the theater is not doing so good. Well, and I'm also hearing that you've been able to retain a relationship. Well, yeah, I actually met my wife in 2007 and we got married in 2008. And now we got two beautiful children. And so honestly, things are going very well now. So I I do have a pretty good balance now because I work from home, you know, so I can, you know, I can do most of my stuff in my office and I watch the kids during the day. And then I do the shows at nights and on the weekends. She works during the day. She's in some of the shows once in a while. So, so it's, it's fun. It's a, it's a lot better than it was. I mean, I can't sit here and say I'm a millionaire or nothing, but I, I can now operate my business as my full-time job and I make enough money to keep our house and stuff like that. So, so uh, we're definitely success in that regard. And a lot of actors would be surprised at how much money you can make if you have the right system. Yeah. Yeah. The right system. Um, Do you, do you have a a mantra for life? Like what's, do you have a secret sort of, you know, code that you live by or not? Uh, you know, the only thing I kind of think sometimes, I don't really have any, any kind of like clever, poetic way of saying it, but the one thing I do is I say, uh, you know, be rational, be irrational. And what, what I kind of mean by that is I am by necessity a very rational, logical, analytical person. But what I found in life is that sometimes you need to really also embrace complete contradiction and complete irrationality. Because, you know, not everything works in a rational way. So sometimes I flip the switch on that. Like in many areas that lend themselves to methodical planning and systemization, I go with the rational side. But other things can't be looked at that way and can't be overcome that way. They're too tumultuous, too chaotic. You need to use irrational power to overcome those types of things. Yeah, and some of that, surely the the acting kind of performance profession, because I recently took an improv course just to get out of my bloody head and into my body, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, to get out of that rational, kind, and in no way uh, intending to, to be an actor or anything. But just like I've been doing other things just to get into my body and the expression of my body and almost that irrational or emotive or different way of figuring things out creatively rather than that, that rational business mind. Jom's right. gave a break, but you, you kind of have learned so much in business. And this, this phrase kind of captures that, it seems, is that rational side. But also that sometimes we just need to go with go in flow or use like completely counterintuitive methods to, to roll with the punches or just move our lives forward in some way. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we're kind of drifting into a metaphysical side of the conversation. But yes, I mean, 
uh, I've, I mean, theater is unique in many ways because like I was always an atheist when I was growing up. I was like, oh, I don't believe in that crazy stuff and all that kind of thing. Um, but as I got older, I just began to like pick up on things that just no longer could just be explained as serendipity. I really did start to feel that there is like some kind of special emotive power that one can have and exert some some control over the universe if you want to go that far. But acting, I think, lends itself particularly because when you're out there on stage in front of 100 people, you can feel the psychic energy when all those eyes are on you. And in some ways, when you're doing your bits and your jokes and you're looking them in the eye and, you know, you can feel that a force field, you know, like a magnetic field just bursting out of you and they're swimming in your psychic field, you know, and you can feel it so much that it it almost makes you, it forces you to believe that there's got to be a soul. There's got to be something because what is this? What is this energy? So I think that's the thing is when, when you're an actor in front of a large group of people that are giving you 100% attention, and you could reach into their mind and change their emotional state from sad to happy or happy to angry or angry to laughing or whatever. You can change all these people. You can feel that. You really can. And I think that's actually, you know, part of the power of entertainment is that you are in a position that nobody else is ever in where you are in front of a large crowd and can conduct their emotions. And that's a privileged place to be. It really is. And the power of storytelling. I mean, I do a lot of keynote speeches just around my background as well as um, around mental health. And, 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 I, and I can feel that as well, that different rooms would be different, right? Depending on the, the energy, the connection and how, and, and, the, and the power that that can have. And, and you touched on very briefly, um, you know, the atheism to then going, you know, there's some kind of energy force or something in the universe that we can play a part in. And like, what's your view now just on, um, do you want to call it spirituality? I don't know, but just the, the energy at play, like, do you have any, any practices or habits connected to getting yourself in the right frame of mind or, you know, setting intentions or what's your view on some of that? Well, I mean, I, the the only thing, I mean, I do have some little ritualistic practices that I do nothing of any honestly everything I've made up myself I didn't really I I don't can't really ascribe to any particular religious practice or anything I I guess I would claim I was a deist if I had to say anything or spiritual person in general I definitely believe there's something behind there's something in back of the world that I just can't know but I I recognize that it probably is there it just seems like there's got to be more there than what we see. So, so I, I guess that's right. But I, I don't have any dogmatic, necessarily categorical. Because when I talk about habits or looking after our mind and our body and things, it's, I really believe that it's not a one size fits all that people come out with their three-step perfect formula plans that they think everyone should adhere to. And I think it's more experimental. Like we've got to learn things, put ourselves out there, try things and that they'll evolve at different stages of our life. So, so just uh, what are some of your habits and routines that seem to work for you? 
Well, the one thing that I, I like to do is I kind of do like a, I guess you call it like a meditation a lot of times when I go to sleep. Like I'll, you know, I visualize, you know, things that I think would be great. Like I, I visualize the company being in certain places and I just visualize the end result of something and then I try to enjoy it. I mean, this is actually a process that, you know, you hear a lot about. But it, it, I latched onto that. It definitely works for me to, to use visualization. So, you know, and I've noticed a lot of things in my life where, you know, boy, I really wish I could, you know, do a show here or something like that. And I would, so I would imagine myself on that stage in front of a big audience and, you know, getting them laughing and rolling. And then, like, you know, a couple of weeks later, I get a call, you know. So that that's actually, you know, whether it's magic or whether it's, you know, just some subconscious, I don't know, but it definitely seems like there's just no way that some of these things that I've visualized and then they actually come to fruition can be just chance, you there's know, to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't want to sit here and preach, you know, all this stuff, but, but they're definitely, I think there is really a strong power to visualizing the end result of something that you really want, like being in a certain venue or, you know, doing a certain new creative idea for a show or, or, you know, having a lot of money or having a lot of opportunity and, and then, and then, you know, going to sleep with that in your mind. And sometimes it'll even guide your dream. You know, you'll have a dream and you'll be like somewhat to do with what you were kind of programming your brain to do. I love that. Oh, because I sometimes do, I, I definitely visualize and it's gotten me to a hell of a lot of places, but not necessarily right before bed. So I think I'm going to test that one out and see how it influences my dreams. Two final things, because we're at our time. This has been sure. so fun, Clyde. Um, first of all, if people want to connect with you in some way, where can they find you? Well, the easiest way is to come to our website, which is uh, www.riddlesbrood.com. That's a great place to can see all the shows that we're doing if you're in the Northeast or also if you're looking for hiring us. I mean, we do shows at colleges and towns and bank facilities all over the country. Uh, we were in South Carolina a couple weeks ago. We were in Texas earlier in the spring. We don't do the faraway ones as much, but we definitely do them. So yeah, uh, give us a call. We'd love to come to you and do a great, great show, all of which are comedies, very funny, very uplifting. Sounds really good. Sounds amazing. From stateside, I'll definitely come and try and find you guys. But we'll, <laughs> add, we'll add that into the show notes. And finally, what advice would you give to uh, your younger self? Seems pretty broad, but I mean, what advice would you give to your twenty-something year your your old self who's just been kicked out of his house and he's like uh, out of college and is just going, "Fuck, what am I going to do?" Like, what advice would you give to that guy right now? Keep the hope and keep the faith. I mean, that, that, at a certain point. Logic and reason are not going to give you the insight you need. You need to have just a undying faith that, you know, it will happen. What I'm imagining will happen, and I can accept nothing else other than that. And I think there was plenty of times where I lost the faith and I lost the hope. And I don't mean faith in any particular deity. I'm just talking about faith that this will occur and not to give up. You know, I think that's what it is. You can't lose hope. You always got to have hope. I love that so much. And as always, when I do these podcasts, I learn something and I appreciate those words just coming straight to me. Forget your younger self and everyone. <laughs> I just heard them and I'm like, keep the faith, keep the hustle going, keep moving forward. Clyde, thank you so much for your wisdom and your time. We appreciate you. 
Oh, thank you so much, Pedro. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Please do subscribe and review on iTunes. Every comment makes a difference. We really appreciate hearing from you. And please do get in touch through PetraBelzebor.com if you're interested in any training, coaching, therapy, or just to join the community and get more information on ways that you can build your own resilience. Until next time.